this morning. I'm keeping you on your toes. I would invite your attention to the book of 2 Samuel in chapter number 6. 2 Samuel chapter number 6. As you know, we've been through a Sunday morning series in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the afternoon, we've been in 2 Samuel. In fact, we've been through the Exodus, parts of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and now 2 Samuel. But I'm mixing things up a little bit because I don't think that we can rightly value, rightly emphasize the importance of what we can learn today. Really, if you don't get anything else out of this message, hear this. We serve a holy God. A holy God. Far beyond anything our minds can even comprehend. All right? 2 Samuel chapter 6, we begin reading verse number 1. There God's word says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from all of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave or they led the new cart. And they brought out, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, Accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments, made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries, and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And they came unto Nacon's threshing floor. I'm sorry, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah and called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And we're just going to stop right there. And next Sunday afternoon, Lord willing, that's where we'll pick back up. Today I want to speak to you on the subject of doing God's work. God's way. Doing God's work God's way. In response to the unexpected and tragic sinking of the Titanic and the massive loss of life of many aboard, federal guidelines were put into place requiring all seafaring vessels 100 tons or greater to have life-saving equipment aboard. They had to have enough lifeboats and life jackets for every single passenger on ship. 
a few, a few years later, to comply with this newly passed maritime law, the SS Eastland added lifeboats and life vests along its top-heavy upper decks. The ship then took on about 2,500 passengers. The vast majority were families of those who worked for the Western Electric Company, and they were going to be ferried to a company picnic on Lake Michigan. The Eastland did not even make it out of dock. Immediately upon launching, the vessel listed to port, took on water, and rolled over in just 20 feet of water. Some of the survivors could just climb over the starboard rail, walk on the upturned hull, and step off onto dry land. But below decks, some 800 passengers, mostly Women and children drowned. I think we could all agree those who added the lifeboats to the ship had good intentions, but their execution or implementation was greatly flawed, thereby leading to tragic loss of life. So while one's goals may be good, doing things the right way is is still essential. It is imperative. And over and over again, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have learned that why we do what we do is of tremendous importance, whether it is giving or praying or preaching or singing, whatever our religious devotion is, our motives matter deeply to God. But what we will learn from this passage today is that God is not only concerned with the why, but the what. Not only why we do what we do, but actually what we do. In other words, when it comes to worship and service to God, not only are proper motives vital, but also proper obedience to God's prescribed methods. Failing to do God's work, God's way, will always and only lead to disaster. I'd like us to follow King David and this huge parade of people as they delightfully travel the eight to nine miles from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the newly appointed capital of Israel. Now for those who may not have been here on Sunday afternoons, let me give you a very brief recap. In chapter 5, David was anointed freshly anointed as king over all 12 tribes. He he has captured the hilltop city of Jebus, renamed it as Jerusalem, and made it the epicenter of Jewish life. By God's help, the nation has handily defeated their archenemy, the Philistines, and to some degree have driven them out of their homeland. But now, 
And quite appropriately, David sets his mind on worship. Not only is the king committed to leading the Israelites in battle, but also leading them back to worship of the one true God. To do so, David amasses a large number of men, 30,000 of them, we read in verse number 1, 30,000 of them to celebrate the return of the forgotten and neglected Ark of the Covenant. It is the king's design to bring the Ark back to its rightful place at the center of Orthodox Judaism thereby re-establishing true worship as God had long ago ordained. The problem, as we will learn together, is though David's motives are pure, he is not doing God's work God's way. And as a result, tragedy ensues. Now, I want to offer some background information because if you don't get this, you won't get the narrative. You won't, if you don't understand the importance and the value of the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't understand, if you don't get that, you're not going to get what happens in this passage here. And I never want to make the assumption that everyone here knows what the Ark of the Covenant was its significance, its value in Jewish life. I sometimes, I, I, in preparing sermons, I, I think, well, everybody knows this. but No, not necessarily. Not everyone may know. So I'd rather us be sure to cover these elemental basics than someone not understand. So let's first look at a description of the ark and its importance. And to do so, I'm going to read some scripture with you. I'm going to invite you to turn back to the book of Exodus and chapter number 25. The book of Exodus and 20, chapter 25, as we look at a description of the ark and its significance in worship or in Jewish worship. The word ark, A-R-K, just simply means a box. It just means box, Okay. But let's read this passage together and you'll see in notes of the significance of the ark. Now God is speaking to Moses in this occasion. He's giving him clear directions on the building of the tabernacle and all the instruments that have to do with it, with the tabernacle, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the brazen altar, the, the, the lava where they wash their hands, the priest do all of these and the, the different types of sacrifices that must be given. But in the midst of this, we learn about what is called the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord, different terms, but speaking of this same, and I use this reverently, the same holy box. Okay? And in Exodus 25, verse 10, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, and that, that could be understood as acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. A cubit being roughly 18 inches, 20 inches, depending on who you read after. The ark itself was roughly about four feet long 
two feet high, two feet deep. As a matter of fact, if you were to look at this table in front of you where we sit up and observe communion together, this table would be very close. Not exact, but just to help you get a picture of it. And in fact, I think, I think I've got one. We have this here to help you visualize. This is what the ark looked like. Okay, I'll put this up. And I'm thankful we have these means today to help us envision this. But there's this ark, roughly four feet long, two feet high, two feet deep. And we see it is made of acacia wood. Verse 11, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And these are some important verses, and particularly as it pertains to our passage. Verse 12, and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it. Four rings, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make the ark, I'm sorry, thou shalt make staves or long poles of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves, these long poles, into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne or carried with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Now let me just stop because we could spend a long time on this. Inside the ark, we learned that there were three things. Inside this box, there were three things that were kept there. One was the Ten Commandments, the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. That was kept inside of this ark. Secondly, there was a jar of manna. That manna that God had rained down on Israel 40 years in the wilderness to provide their daily needs, their daily bread, if you will. Some of that was put into a pot or a jar and then placed inside of the ark. And then thirdly, there was the staff, Aaron's staff that, that had budded or there was this dry staff that God through his power had made to grow green. Even though it was just a, a dried up stick, God had brought life from death, if you will, and th- this is God's law. Inside the ark, there's God's law and manifestations of God's might in the bringing down of the manna and causing Aaron's rod to bud or to grow or to bring forth new life. It, it is God's law kept there, it is, and there are manifestations of God's might or power kept inside of the ark. Now on the top, and this is what we're about to read about in Exodus 25, on the top of the ark, there is what is called the mercy seat, the place of propitiation. In fact, that's what the word propitiation means. It means a mercy seat. There on the top, there is a solid, I'm going to say lid, but I don't mean that in any irreverent way, but there was a, it was a solid gold top placed on it or lid placed on it. Look at verse 17, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now it's solid gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the, the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So you get it completely covers the same dimensions of the box or the ark itself. And thou shalt make two cherubims. This is angels, angelic beings. Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, solid gold, of beaten work. Thou shalt make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. 
So you have this, these wings of these angels, angelic beings, stretched out, touching one another, facing one another, as you see in this depiction. And that's all that this is. It's a good depiction, but it is a portrait of the ark. But with their faces bowed or turned downward in understanding, in awe or reverence of the presence of God. Okay, Verse 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat... Above, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony, that is the commandments, that I shall give thee. And there, and this is important, verse 20, and there I will meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So it was God's great design that when the tabernacle was built, that this ark would be placed in what we term as the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, that is behind the veil, okay? And there God's presence would be. If you will remember upon the building of the tabernacle and then later as Solomon would would construct the temple, When God came down in power and majesty in what is called the Shekinah glory of God, the manifestation of the glory and presence of God, that glory was seen between the mercy seat. So much so that if if you'll go back in the Old Testament, you'll learn that when Moses would go in to commune with God and he would stay there, his face would shine. So there was the glorious presence of God It was to this mercy seat, I'm sorry, it was to this ark with its mercy seat that every year, and and I've had so much fun this week thinking on these things, every year, think of this, Yom Kippur, on the great day of atonement, once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, and only one day a year, would enter behind the veil into that most holy place and he would sprinkle blood seven times. He would do that first for his own sins. He would go back out, get the blood of an innocent animal. That's what he came in with the first time. That lamb that was without spot, without blemish, he would go in. And then he would go back in a second time and sprinkle blood seven times, but this time for the sins of the people. He went in once to make atonement, a temporary covering, if you will, to make an atonement for his own sins. And then went back in a second time to make atonement for the sins of the people. Which, you'll just have to forgive me if I stop here just a minute and make a point. When Jesus entered into that heavenly tabernacle, now remember, Moses built the tabernacle and its instruments based on the pattern that was showed him on Mount Sinai. In other words, I believe that God showed Moses a heavenly tabernacle. And I know not everybody believes this, but that's okay. Not everybody's right about everything. But God revealed to Moses his heavenly tabernacle and whether or not there was actually an altar there. And we can argue about that, but I tell you this much. We know that there are holy angels there, cherubim there, who hover around the throne of God with their wings out and their faces bowed who cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Read Isaiah chapter number 6. 
And so to some degree, there is a heavenly mercy seat where there are true angels bowing before the presence of God. And so Jesus, upon His death, enters into that heavenly mercy, that heavenly tabernacle, into that place of the true holy of holies, and there He sprinkles His own blood. But He didn't have to go in twice. Hebrews tells us He entered in once. Because he did not have to make atonement for his own sin because he had no sin. But he entered in only one time to make an atonement for the people. And I believe, and if I'm wrong, that's okay, but I believe that there is some type of a heavenly throne there on which the very blood of Jesus Christ himself has been sprinkled for the covering and remission of our sins. That heavenly mercy seat, that propitiation, if you will. Now I know I'm going around, but just bear with me. So imagine, if you would, this high priest going in year after year after year after year, sprinkling blood on this mercy seat. There the presence of God is. This is a high and holy instrument in the worship, Old Testament worship of God. It was to be treated with respect and awe. If you think about the ark, you remember when the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land? God instructed Joshua, said, you put the ark out there. And those who are carrying the ark, just as soon as they, their toes touch the water of the Jordan River, it'll split in half. And that's exactly what happened. The ark led the way. When they went to go battle Jericho, what did they carry with them around the city of Jericho? The ark of the covenant. This was a high and holy instrument, but it was not to be treated as a lucky talisman. If you've been with us on Sunday evenings, you'll know, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, you'll know that Israel at one time tried to use it as a lucky charm. Their hearts were far from God. They were losing in battle. But they just said, you know what, if we can get the ark, we're guaranteed to win. So they go get the ark, take it into battle, and what happens? They lose. Not only do they lose the battle, but the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant away. They seize or steal the Ark of the Covenant. Now you ask the Philistines, if you would, what happens when holy things are in wicked hands? It did not bode well for the Philistines when they had the Ark of God. It did not work out well for them at all. Man, my battery's going to die and I'm going to lose my sermon outline here. And I just started. It did not work well for the Philistines all. So the ark was a high and holy instrument and it belonged in the hands of God's people. But here's what's happened. The people have for generation now neglected the ark of God. They've neglected it. They have not worshipped God truly. They have not been actively serving Him. And so David says, not only, not only is it right that we get rid of the enemy, that we establish dominance, but we've got to get back to worshiping God the way God has ordained it. We've got to get back to this, okay? And so David then determines. So I gave you a description, but I want to give you David's determination. His determination is we're going to get back to serving God His way. And to do that, I'm going to give you this, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. As we've been going through this on Sunday, um, 
Sunday evenings, Sunday afternoons, we've gone back and forth between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Again, Chronicles is just a concise history of Israel. Go get my charger, Gracie K. Get my charger for my laptop. If this goes out, y'all are going to see me come apart. I couldn't get the printer to work this morning. And now my battery's going to die, and then y'all are going to see your preacher melt here. Thank you. So David's determination is, let's get back to doing what's right. Now, I don't want to read all of First Chronicles 13 and verses. Really, this whole chapter is just a retelling of what is found in 2 Samuel 6 where we are. But I do want to notice the first three verses. The first three verses of 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And it says, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere, that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us. Notice these words. For we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. Now, if you have a little bit of history, you've been with us, you know Come on up here. No, that ain't the right thing. Is that the right thing? You're my hero. Plug it in right here somewhere. Is this distracting? I am so sorry. There's a plug somewhere, baby. I apologize. I couldn't get the printer to work, and I don't know why. Anybody that's ever worked with that thing will know. Y'all want to just hit the pause button on worship today? No, baby. Right here, honey. I don't know if that'll reach or not. Okay. I got the power. Yes, ma'am. Thank y'all. And I apologize for that. I don't know what was up with the printer. Do you notice that with me? First Chronicles 13, verse 3. How long had Saul reigned in Israel? Forty years. And the text says they had not inquired of the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant. That is, they have just neglected the true worship of God for 40 years. But now just stop and plug your brain in for a little bit. It also been seven and a half years that David was ruling in Hebron and not over all 12 tribes. And they've had a battle with the Philistines, so it has probably been at least 50 years since God's people have worshipped God in His way. 50 years. There's a lot of this, a lot of that, that you would do well if you would stop and meditate and think on some of these things. What happened to the tabernacle? What happened to the worship of God? Why wasn't it a priority? 
Obviously, Saul was more obsessed with killing David than he was with leading the nation in public worship or corporate worship. So David determines, and rightly so, if we want to see God's blessing on our nation, we must, we simply must, get back to worshiping God in God's way. We've got to, we've got to bring the worship of God back to the centerpiece of our civilization. And so this is what David determines to do. So he gathers this large number. We read again in, in our passage, there are 30,000 of them, 30,000. And there's this huge parade, this celebration, as they make their way to Kirjath-Jerom, to where a man named Abinadab lives, and he has two sons, Ahio and Uzzah. And there to the house of Abinadab, do they joyously go with the intention of taking the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem. But there's a problem. There is a dereliction of duty. I gave you a description of the ark, David's determination, but notice this dereliction of duty by both David and the people. Back in our text now, it says in verse 3, they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Now immediately, some red flags should come up for you. In our text, they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Isn't it interesting that the author wants to tell us it's not just a cart, it's a new cart. And in fact, at the close of verse number 3, you find that again. What's the problem? Yeah, the problem is you're not supposed to put the car, the ark on a cart. The ark is supposed to be carried by the high priest. In particular, it is the tribe of the Kohathites. Isn't that fun to say? Particular, it is the tribe, one particular tribe out of Levi, the Levites, that was tasked with handling the holy things of God. And in fact, when they were disassembling the tabernacle, when they got to the ark, it was supposed to be covered in badger's wood. I'm sorry, badger skin. It was supposed to be covered so they would not look upon it or be tempted to look within it. The last time Israel tried to open the ark and looked within it, it didn't work out for them. Many of them died as a result of it. And they were supposed to carry the ark. They should have known this. This is a dereliction of duty. They should have. David should have known this. The priests should have known this. The Kohathites should have known this. The Levites should have known this. The people should have known this. But maybe they just thought, we'll do it our way, and our way is just as good as God's way. Maybe that's what they thought. Now, how is it that David should have known? And here is where, Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, on a Sunday afternoon, I sort of jokingly said, pay attention to this part because it's going to be on the test later. But how is it that David should have known? And the answer to that is in Deuteronomy 17. I'm not going to turn there, but I want you to think about this. In Deuteronomy 17, God said... When a king assumes the throne, 
He is to make himself a copy of the writings given to Moses and he is to meditate and study on them every day. So David should have got out quill and papyrus or whatever that it was and began to copy what we would say Genesis 1-1 and copy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He should have made his own copy of the Pentateuch. Had he done that, he would have known the ark doesn't belong on a card. It belongs on the shoulders of the priests. And the priest should have known. I'm going to give you these references rather than running them. But in Numbers 4 verse 15, it says it is to be born. They're not to touch the ark itself. And then in Numbers 7 verse 9, that it is to be carried on their shoulders. It is not to be put in any other way. And remember, we read in Exodus 25, there were four rings, one on each corner of the ark. There were four poles. Those poles were to remain there. And that the ark itself was, should, should have only been transported by this one tribe assigned by God. And do you understand, friends? It doesn't matter that David and his merry band of men put the ark on a new cart. That doesn't make one bit of difference. It could have been a brand new cart that David just had built for the occasion. It could have been an old cart. It wouldn't have mattered. It could be a gold-plated cart. And it wouldn't have mattered. It could have been a tricked-out trailer. But it wasn't. This wasn't God's ordained means for His work to be done. And when you don't do God's work, God's way, trouble, in fact, guaranteed destruction is sure to come. So notice with me now the death of Uzzah. They've got the ark of God, the presence of God. They have it loaded on this new cart. They're making their journey. I want you to notice this. Verse 4, they bring it out of the house of Abinadab, which is at Gibeah or Kirjathjearim. They are accompanying the ark of God. Ahio, one of the sons, is leading these two oxen who are pulling the car. Verse 5, David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord. I want you to see this as a celebration. This is is a parade, if you will. 30,000 people traveling together celebrating this. David and all the house of Israel play before the Lord. Verse 5, and, and I'm going to be just a little bit sarcastic when I say, if David's band showed up at our church, y'all would fall out of your pews. Because they had harps and psalteries and timbrels and cornets and cymbals. Anybody want cymbals up in here? But when we think this is, and I'm just going to just going to say this, we get the idea so soon that we that God only likes the kind of instruments that you like. Do you hear that? We get to thinking, well, God only kind of li- only likes the kind of music I like. That's not who God is. 
And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, you read Psalms 150, the culmination of it is going to be, let everything, everything that can be used to give praise to God can be used to give praise to God. Whether that is a guitar, or an electric guitar, or drums, which are percussion instruments, the same as what they're using, or a piano, or an organ, or whatever. It may not suit you, but you're not the one we're here to worship. Do I need to get in the microphone and say that a little louder? It may not be your first choice, but guess what? We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God, are we not? When they, verse 6, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen show you. In other words, the oxen stumble. They're pulling this cart, the oxen stumble. They hit something, a rock, a stone, and probably it is the flat floor of a threshing floor, this area, hard area, and they stumble, they trip over it, and it looks like the ark is going to fall. So Uzzah did what probably most of us would have done. He reached out his hand to stop the ark from sliding off the cart and landing in the dirt. Answer me this. As best we can learn, don't you think Uzzah's motives that at that moment were probably pure? That he was really trying to do what was right, what he considered to be good? Did Uzzah, quote, mean well? Did he do a virtuous act? Sure he did. Yet, God killed him. And I want to say that as clearly and as plainly as I can say it because it needs to be said. Uzzah did not spontaneously combust. He didn't have a massive coronary. He didn't have a brain aneurysm. God killed him. And I I say that Verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died. Why? Why? Why would God do this? Because when it comes to the worship and service of God, not only are proper motives vital, but also proper obedience to God's prescribed methods. This celebration has now become a funeral procession. The music stops. The laughter ends. The parade is over. The joy is gone. Uzzah is dead. God killed him. And maybe you're sitting there today and you say, i got a real problem with that. Maybe this idea of what God did on this day, maybe that doesn't fit your idea of who God is and what God would and would not do. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not fair. That's not judicious. What a gross overreach of supreme power this is. If you're thinking this way, 
is simply because you do not rightly understand the holiness of God and the unholiness of men. You don't understand who you are, nor do you rightly understand who God is. God is infinitely, immutably holy, and we are not. Uzzah, and I'm stealing this from R.C. Sproul, but it's good. Uzzah made the foolish mistake of thinking his wicked hands were more holy than the ground. Man, you ought to chew on that one this week. Uzzah made the mistake of thinking that his hands were more holy than the ground itself. But friends, God was just and good and right and pure and perfect and judicious in striking Uzzah dead on the spot. In fact, rather than questioning why would God do this, I think the better question is, why doesn't God do this more often? How often are His holy things mishandled by wicked hands? How often is His name taken in vain? How often is the Lord's day, God's word, His worship, neglected and mistreated by fallen men? How often does this occur and yet God graciously and mercifully allows it to go on? If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, poor Uzzah, but that ain't me. I got news for you, sinner. You're just as guilty as Uzzah was. You're just as guilty. You say, now wait a minute, I hadn't reached forth and put my hands on that ark. No, but you have touched something else or someone else that God has forbidden. In your heart, you know that you've broken the divine law of God. You're guilty before Him. And the only hope is the blood on the mercy seat. Bug, put that picture back up here a minute. I want to think about this. For years, those high priests would come in and seven times... Sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And then come back in a second time and do it again. For years that mercy seat was stained by the blood of innocent animals. You don't read anywhere in the, in the Old Testament about them getting a jar of Windex and going and cleaning the mercy seat. That blood stayed there on that mercy seat is a constant reminder of the sinfulness of men and the necessity of the shedding of blood. And when Uzzah reached forth his hand, he was reaching forth. There on that mercy seat was blood, the stains of the innocent animals. Yet that blood on that mercy could not save him, could not keep him from dying. But listen to me, dear dear sinner friend. The blood on that heavenly mercy seat can keep you from eternal death. The blood that Jesus Christ sprinkled on that heavenly propitiation, on the heavenly mercy seat, it can wash you whiter than snow. Oh, listen, you may not have done what us have done and put forth your hand, but you've broken God's law. 
You are guilty before Him. And unless you find forgiveness through the blood that was shed by the innocent Lamb of God, you too will die one day. God may not kill you today, but you're going to die. The wages of sin is death. Death's payday will come. Unfortunately, we have learned, have we not, as a church, that sudden and unexpected death comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. You don't know when, but death will come. God may be merciful. He may not do like He did with us and strike you dead at the moment, but ultimately, death will have its payday. The wages of sin is death. Sin will lay claim to your soul. It's going to happen. And your only hope is to find forgiveness in the shed blood of the innocent Lamb of God. Place your faith in His death and glorious resurrection in your half. In your behalf. And maybe, just maybe, you're thinking, well, listen now, preacher, that's, that's just that Old Testament God. He was mean and angry. He didn't do that kind of stuff. God doesn't do that kind of thing. Our Jesus is so gentle now, He doesn't do that kind of thing. Well, I would point you to the book of Acts, and let's go ask Ananias and Sapphira whether or not God will bring swift and immediate judgment upon those who disobey Him, who don't do His work His way. And I've got to hurry because it's, you know, it, I got battery in here and I got battery in here, but... This dereliction of duty led to the death of Uzzah, but then it also led to the dismay of David. And I'm not really going to get into this. In verses 8 through 10, David was displeased. And maybe you're reading that and you're, you're a little bit put out about it too. But let me tell you something. God didn't ask your permission to do what he did. We have too low a view of who God is in modern Christianity today. We just don't understand who He is and how holy He is. But what is the application that we should take? And let me give, give me a few more minutes. What is the application that we should take in our New Testament times? As we've talked about doing God's work God's way, what is the application that we should make? What do we learn from this? And it is this, not only are our motives important, but doing God's work, God's way, is an imperative. Now in your bulletins, for those of you who have a bulletin, if you look on the right-hand page, I included something there that you look at it and you probably think that's boring and mundane and who really cares. But it would do you well, Christian, to learn some of this terminology that's there. And there I put in what is called the regulative principle of worship versus the normative principle of worship. Because this, this passage is about how you rightly do God's things, how we rightly worship God, whether or not we want to do it in a way that is acceptable unto Him. Good intentions aren't enough. Did Uzzah have pure intentions? Yes. Were his motives right? I'm sure they were. But it still wasn't enough. You've got to honor God by doing things the way that God says, I want them done. And corporately, that's true, individually, but as we're thinking about worship and what we should do corporately, we need to think on these things. I would encourage you to read those descriptions there given of the regulative and the normative principles of worship and think on those things. 
Now, I will warn, both sides, regulative and normative, can be carried to an extreme. I will give you an example. The regulative principle simply says, if the Bible doesn't tell us to do it in, in corporate worship, we can't do it. And so some of them will carry that to an extreme and say there is no New Testament. Yes, Old Testament. But there's no New Testament command to use instruments in worship. And so there are some churches who mean well, but carry that regulative principle, in my opinion, carry it too far, not using any instruments in New Testament worship. They say there's no New Testament regulation for that. Um, the other side, the normative, can be carried to the extreme where they say, well, anything goes. As long as the New Testament doesn't forbid it, we can do it. And I want to take, I'm going to take a couple of minutes, so you might as well just get comfortable here. I'm going to take a couple of minutes for us to talk about this. And when you look at those two and you say, okay, preacher, which is right, I'm going to tell you how I lean. I lean strongly towards the regulative principle of worship. That is, God is the one that we are here to worship. Therefore, it is God who gets to determine how that is done. We should turn to God's Word to see how God would be worshipped. And there are just some things, friends, there are just some things that God says are essential to worship. When we get together, we're going to preach. We're going to study the Word. We're going to pray. We read this morning from Ephesians 5, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're going to lift our voices in praise to God. Giving, giving of thanks, the public reading of Scripture... These are the things that God has said. This is how I want to be worshipped. Through the preaching of the word, through the prayers of the saints, through the giving of thanks, to, to the public reading of my word. These are the things that God has said. And I just want to remind you, friends, worship is supposed to be about what pleases God. And... and some of this I, I, is probably invariably coming from my frustration of preaching my guts out for seven years and I look around at 25 or 30 people when there are other churches in the community that are busting at the seams. And I'm just being candid with you about it. But we're not going to. Unless you want a different pastor, you can do that. But when we gather together, we're not here to entertain one another. That's not what we're here for. We can't do it well. The world can do it better. If that's what you want, go find it there. We are here not to lay hands on the Ark of the Covenant. We're not to try and make it up as we go, but to do what pleases God. We don't need, and I'm not trying to make anybody mad, but this is something. We don't need statues and carvings and images and portraits we don't need all of those things. What we need is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what we need. Sincerity is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. Uzzah was sincere, but he was wrong. Now here's what happens if you ignore the regulative principle of worship and you go to the normative principle. People have churches have good intentions. But they say, you know, as long as the Bible doesn't say we can't do this, then it's okay. But the problem with that is that they fail to recognize that God is to be the object of corporate worship, not man, not men. 
And when we live in a culture of man-centered, humanistic thinking and expectation, out comes the seeker-sensitive movement where churches, even with good motives, make bad decisions. If you want to... I don't know I don't know whether to laugh or cry. But if you would go to YouTube, you could find some of the crazy, absurd things that churches have done in worship. There's a video that I watched this week in which the preacher comes into the church on a zip line. Well, the New Testament doesn't forbid it, so it must be okay, right? And people applaud and love it. But I guess what? God is a million miles from that. There's a video, and let's go ahead and get mad and then get over it. But at an Andy Stanley church, y'all want to sit around and brag on Andy Stanley, let me tell you, he ain't his daddy. At an Andy Stanley church, where two young men got up and led the assembly in rap, rap, which I could even get over that, except it was nothing theocentric. They were rapping about an upcoming football game at church. Or how about when a church brings in cheerleaders? Literally happened. Or when the pastor thinks it's cool and hip to stand on top of the building and preach. Or when you remove the pulpit, as many have done, all in the name of worship. You know what I'm going to say? We ought to do God's work God's way. We ought to honor Him, not what pleases men and not what entertains the flesh, but in a way that not only do we have right motives, but we have the right methods. I'm not mad at everybody, even if I sound like it. I'm not. But again, the question, and when you hear about these things, when you hear about these things going on in the name of worship, the question is not, why did God strike us a dead? The question is, why doesn't God do it more often? It matters how we worship God. 